0: Well, it's lovely to see some faces we haven't seen in a while. Some new faces, and some faces we just saw, like, a few days ago. (laughs) All put together. Uh, My name is Semke, and uh, Venerable Chujun at this moment is in Indonesia. And uh, Venerable Chuni is in the process of departing for Indonesia this evening, so she's not with us today either. So we're going to just take a few minutes once again to come back in. I'll set a short motivation. And then I'm going to share um, a little bit on a topic that we are following in a book called Buddhism for Beginners, a book that the Venerable Children wrote a number of years ago. And um, it's a lovely book. We have them in the, um, the bookcase in the dining room. And it's some of the frequently asked questions about Buddhism that come from Westerners that Venerable addressed in the book And the chapter that we're doing this month is on love and compassion, so I'm going to try to glean some of her wisdom from it. It was quite a short chapter, so I had to go looking other places. Um, She also gave a talk on compassion in Missoula last year at St. Patrick's Hospital, which was quite profound, which I also have integrated into the sharing today. And then one of probably the most lovely books on the practical steps and process of actually being able to expand our love and compassion, is this lovely book by His Holiness called How to Expand Love, Widening the Circle of Loving Relationships. So I have been quite selfishly wise, and I've pulled a lot of things out of this book to share with you today. So putting that all together in hopes of bringing some clarity, not only to my own mind, but to you folks on these two beautiful qualities that... uh, We frequently misunderstand what exactly love and compassion are in our world, so hopefully we'll get some clarity today. So let's spend a few minutes and then I'll set a a motivation and begin. So I've been thinking about today. All of us, I think, would be hard-pressed to find anything to complain about with this beautiful sunny day. And also looking at the quality of our lives, all that we have, the food, the clothing, the shelter, the good friends, the family, opportunities that present themselves to grow, to learn, Minds that work, bodies that work, for the most part. And so to see the freedom, the fortunes that we have living in the world that we do, in the country that we do, in the communities that we do. How to aspire to um, not just use this precious human life to sort of foster a preoccupation with our own happiness, and our own well-being, and the alleviation of our own suffering. But because we have such preciousness, and such rarity, by the quality of the lives that we do have now, let's try and expand our wish. To expand that good fortune, or to use it in a way that brings happiness, brings some benefit, brings connection, for us with others. Helps us to use our capacities and our skills and our very good hearts to shed a little light on the world that so badly needs that love, that light, that care, that friendship. And so today as we come with our shared interest, perhaps some curiosity, let's open our hearts to the Buddha's teachings and um, see if we can find some... um, good practical tools to help us to do that, so that we can really be of benefit in our lives, cultivating the causes and conditions to have happiness and freedom from suffering for ourselves now and in the future, help. What being able to help and guide others to create the causes for happiness and freedom from suffering in their own lives now and in the future. So let's put that out there as a strong aspiration and intention. And so to, to start off um, with this topic, these I think probably of all the qualities that I've ever personally wanted to aspire to develop, I would say that love and compassion are probably in the top five. And when I met the Dharma, I had to kind of rethink what love and compassion meant, because the definitions are a lot vaster and a lot more profound than I thought. So the Buddha taught that love is the wish for all living beings to have happiness and the causes for happiness. And compassion is the wish for all living beings to be free of suffering and its causes. Now the crucial word here is all. And that's where I think for me personally it has become a challenging practice, a difficult practice over the years because all is a big word and my love and compassion generally don't include everybody. But the Buddha taught that if love and compassion, if they're going to be genuinely expressed, have to include everybody. And if you've ever gone to a teaching by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, one of the first things that he says is that, just like me, everybody wants happiness and not suffer. That is a fundamental truth encompassing all living beings beings who walk, eat, breathe, cognize in our world. And so in wanting to learn how to expand my love and compassion, I have found, fortunately, by living here at the Abbey, meeting the Dharma through Venerable, some of these wonderful practical steps of practice that the Buddha taught to actually help us to expand our field of love and compassion so that one day, certainly not now, my hopes are that I can actually be able to experience love and compassion in that way to encompass all beings. And so today I wanted to share some of the points that I have found helpful in sort of growing my love and compassion, as well as some of the things that I've had to and continue to work on, some of the ways that I think that actually are obstacles to expanding my love and compassion, some misunderstandings, some myths about it. And so the beginning is, how differently do we have to think in order to expand our definition and experience of love and compassion the way that the Buddha taught it? The whole point being to develop this closeness and this concern for all beings equally, no matter who they are, no matter how they treat us, no matter how they behave, to wish them to be happy and not suffer. And the first obstacle and the meditation that Venerable Jigme led us in this morning, the first obstacle in the way of cultivating love and compassion is this mental habit that we have of putting people in these three categories. Totally kind of the premise is that how they treat me determines which category they go into. So they're either going to be a friend, you're either going to be an enemy or they are either going to be a stranger. Solely in relationship to this one single being called me who happens to be the center of the universe. So the friends are those that, you know, encourage, agree, entertain, humor, care, support, and provide for me. That includes our pets, you know, animals, things like that. The strangers, and there's a lot of attachment that goes on in relationship to that because they do fulfill or at least we think they fill a lot of our basic needs. Then there's this category called strangers, which 999999999 percent of all living beings dwell in it sometime or another. And for me, they're, they're mostly off the radar screen, you know, because they're not benefiting me in any direct way, and right now they're not harming me or behaving in a way that I don't like. So there's an indifference or an apathy in my mind that arises, and I'm not quite aware of them, nor do I really care what's happening to them. So that's a huge category, and, you know, the part that they relate to with me is not going on at the time. And then the third one is the enemy category, and those are those beings that criticize, disagree, judge, harm me, and who I think interfere with me getting my happiness and my needs met. And for them, I want them to be as far away as possible, and they're the last Beings that I ever want to think about having happiness and its causes or wanting to be free of suffering. It's not even, you know, a lot of times, not even on my radar screen on that one either. And as long as we have others in these three categories, it's going to be very, very difficult to generate and expand our love and compassion. They exist in these categories solely on the rationale of our own minds that say how they treat me determines how I feel about them. So then, the question then arises for me is then, well, what steps can I take to start opening this view of myself and relationship to others that isn't so bound by these constraints of friend, enemy, and stranger? And kind of holds my mind at bay, makes it kind of small, makes it kind of tight, makes it kind of conditioned as to who gets my love and who gets my compassion. The Buddha gave some beautiful teachings on how to work with these categories, how to start blurring the edges and start to bring beings into somewhat of a level field in relationship to us. And um, and what these teachings are is that they're very um, experiential, logical meditations that get us connected to the interdependence, how much we truly depend on others for our survival without them we could not exist and so I've got two of them in particular that I want to share today and um, and that the first one which is the kindness of others has been a huge piece for me to be able to see people that I have considered enemies for much of my life to be able to take them out of that category and real to quite literally open my heart to them And so the way that the Buddha taught this, knowing that we still kind of struggle with these categories of friend, enemy, and stranger, is he said, well, then go ahead and look at your friends. Put them out there. Like Venerable Jigme had us look today. This is the easiest category to see the kindness of people because our affection naturally arises in relationship to the people we consider friends. There's no big push. There's no big... You know, struggle to find love and compassion and our wish for them to be happy and not suffer because it, it just arises naturally. And so these are the, the folks who support and encourage us in so many ways. These are our parents, our family, our friends, people who mentor us, people who help us grow our capacity to love, to grow our capacity to have compassion and develop all of our good qualities and our skills. And the part that the Buddha says to be careful of is that we think about the kindness of those that are near and dear to us, not to sort of grow our attachment to them, our clinginess, our neediness, our wanting them to be in a certain way and to see them as a cause of our happiness, but he says we look at the kindness of our friends simply to grow our gratitude for them, to gratitude, our incredible appreciation for all that they've given us. So that's the, the nearest and dearest friends. easy to see that kind of kindness. Then we move into the second category, the strangers, which is the 9999999 percent of sentient beings in this world, who we couldn't live as well as we do and have all the material goods, the opportunities, the services that we have without them. And this one takes some doing, because this is a... Sometimes my mind not only does it get indifferent, but it gets a sense of entitlement when I think about all the things that I have and all the things that I get and all the things that are provided for me but what you do and what's helpful is you take anything that you own any service that you utilize and you start with the point of contact and you try to find the beginning of where the sentient being started that made whatever or whomever you have a relationship to in your life right now so whether it's your big screen TV or it's your little kitty you try to find We're the beginning of the kindness of what that being or what that object does for you to supply contentment, to support you, to encourage you, to entertain you, to humor you, to provide for you. And if you take anything and you try to track that down, you start seeing more and more beings, more and more situations, more and more cause and conditions of others participating in something very simple as a table. And so by doing this, you start seeing that there isn't anything in our lives. (coughs) that doesn't come to us due to the kindness of other people. There's this Australian nun, uh, Venerable Rabina, who gives this teaching a lot, and I've heard it a few times, and she's got this analogy that I find quite striking and very compelling. There are beings in our world that are called bodhisattvas, who embody this love and compassion. They think solely of others, they wish only to, to be able to encourage and support them having happiness and to alleviate the suffering however they can for all living beings. And they have the realization of this kindness so deeply that she says that if just imagine a bodhisattva going into Safeway to go shopping and having the realization of the kindness of others on everything that is contained in that supermarket, she said out of sheer joy they would be compelled to prostrate down the aisles in gratitude. Because they would be able to see that that can of beans that they're about to take off the shelf is due to this incredible array of sentient beings who made that possible. And every object in that store, they would have the understanding of the level of kindness of strangers. That kind of mind that's so big, that understands <sighs> the kindness of strangers. We also, and then of course some folks come along and say, well, well, they get paid for doing that job. They don't know why it exists. They go to work. They probably hate their jobs. So they put the can of beans, make the can of beans on the shelves. What does it have to do with kindness? Well, the Buddha says the fact that we are the direct recipients of their efforts, no matter how they think, means that that's a kindness that they are offering to us, and to be the recipients of that kindness. The other uh, beings that get to be put into this category is to look at the kindness of the animals of the world all the food that they supply for us, all the raw materials that make our clothing, our shelter,
1: the companionship
0: that they supply, they recycle waste, dead material, they pollinate all of our food growth. they pollinate all of our millions and millions of acres of agricultural crops. And without their kindness, we wouldn't have a lot of food. We would be up to our eyeballs in poo-poo if it wasn't for them. So they get put into the stranger category. Of course, there's untold amounts of those little critters wandering mm-hmm. around. And then the third category that the Buddha says to look at, you know, of probably the most difficult yet the most precious kindness is the kindness of enemies. And these are the folks that without them, we would never be able to or be very difficult to develop. Patience, inner strength, compassion, tolerance, um, forgiveness, equanimity. We wouldn't be able to cultivate those because our friends in general don't give us the golden opportunity to cultivate those more difficult qualities. Unless, of course, we toss them into the enemy category mm-hmm. for whatever reason, and then you know there's an opportunity to practice patience with them. And in many ways difficult ones, the enemy, show us not only, you know, this kind by helping us to cultivate these good qualities, but they also show us some of our weak sides. Some of the faults that we have, some of the things that we need to work on, because I don't know about you, but the, the difficult people know exactly where my buttons are and they like to poke at them. And instead of blaming them for poking at them, thinking that they created the buttons, they're just being very, very kind and very precious by showing me the things that I have not resolved within myself. And so the Buddha says, these are our greatest teachers. So by looking at the kindness of these three categories, it slowly gets to sort of blur the edges about, well, who's really going to get my love? Who's going to really, really get the wish that they all be free of suffering and its causes? This practice over time really blurs the edges of who is who and who deserves what from me in a very profound, practical, experiential way. And I have found this to be one of the most powerful uh, practices that the Buddha gave. The other one to help us to make our love and compassion less partial, less biased, is to to identify the similarities that we have with sentient beings rather than the differences. That's a very, very helpful way to go. And one of the most powerful ways to do that is to look at the fact that we all experience suffering and dissatisfaction. This is a shared experience. Talk about leveling the field of sentient beings. And that regardless of the race, The species, whether it's got two feet, four feet, wings, fins, hooves, whether it has a certain type of economic status, political view, philosophical view, there is not one living being in this entire planet that does not experience suffering or some form of dissatisfaction daily, sometimes even moment by moment. And looking at this kind and looking at the different kinds of suffering that we all do experience helps to close the gap between me and other because that's the major difficulty about growing our love and compassion is that we see the separation between us wanting happiness and not suffer, and then who else also wants happiness and not suffer, but by looking at suffering as a general Daily experience of all living beings—it really changes the relationship to others. And there's three kind of sufferings that all living beings deal with: it's the the physical, mental pain, from headaches to hurt feelings. I don't know if there's any living being that doesn't experience that, and we all want to be free of that. I think that's a general truth. The second suffering that we want, all living beings want to be free of, is this unsatisfactory condition that comes with the the nature of this world, which is that it changes moment by moment. So things that we call happiness, or that we think bring happiness, as we experience them, eventually um, turn into dissatisfaction, mostly because they either die, they leave, they make us sick, They abandon us. They fall apart. And because we've got ourselves convinced that these things that change moment by moment bring us happiness, when they don't live up to the expectation, there's this huge amount of mental suffering. And the part that we haven't begun to understand is that if happiness were an intrinsic quality of the people that we have in our life, the objects that we have in our life, if happiness was an intrinsic quality of any of these things in the world, the logic would seem that if you spent all your time with them or you stayed engaged with the object for 24-7, day after day after day, our happiness should increase. If indeed those things brought us happiness. But they don't. In fact, it's quite contrary the more that we spend time, the suffering and the discontent arise because these things don't last. And this is an experience that all living beings have, whether it's a turkey or whether it's a metaphysicist, there's the suffering and the dissatisfaction of change. Then the third suffering that pervades all of living beings' minds in this world is that we have these minds that are under the control of all sorts of emotions, which we have well, we try to spend a lot of time controlling them and you know trying to operate them somewhat consciously. But the jealousy, the sadness, the loneliness, the fear, the anxiety, all of us have minds that <coughs> gravitate in and out of those emotions daily, pretty much without our control, without us having to do a lot to make them arise. And not only that, but we have these bodies that from the time that we're born, whether you're a little turtle <coughs> or you're you know a young rock star your body is immediately aging, getting sick, and is going to die. So this is also a universal truth of a certain kind of suffering, that there is not one living being that doesn't have an experience of And His Holiness says, this is, this is one of the most profound things that I ever... I mean, he says so many profound things. But this is the one that ties into bringing the, the playing field a little bit more level. He says that only... When we want to remove the causes for these three types of sufferings from the lives of all beings, as intently as we want to remove a piece of wood chip that has gotten lodged in our eye, you know when that happens? Everything stops. Look at my eye. Look at the salt water. Do you see? Look at the flashlight. Oh, i got to go to the doctor's. I mean, the intention to get that thing out of our eye remove the physical suffering as quickly as possible, he says, only when we look at the suffering of others with the same focus, the same intention to alleviate the suffering, only then will we understand how closely we are connected within the scope of suffering. And that's where, he says, the seeds of love and compassion just flourish. And it's just like, Whoa. it just blossoms. It's like this beautiful spring rain watering these beautiful fertile seeds under the soil. So extending this understanding of the various ways we suffer to other living beings Realizing that there's no one in the world that doesn't want exactly what we want, to be happy and not suffer. Having that understanding that no matter how important we are, status, responsibility, economic class, reputation, material gain, there's only one of us and there's a whole lot more of others who experience the same kind of suffering. And what this does, understanding this commonality, this shared experience of suffering, is that it ends up sort of expanding our wish, our goal to fulfill all of our own personal, spiritual, physical development so that we can grow our capacity to then be able to do something, to to be able to alleviate, to be able to help as many beings as we can And to wish that other beings gain that kind of development, the opportunity to grow in the same way that we wish to. And that's where the love and compassion grow, that deep wish. May I be able to grow the capacity to be able to to benefit as many beings as possible so that they too can grow in their own development, their own spiritual aspirations, to be able to live up to their own spiritual yearnings and to be able to actualize them. And when I came to this point in, the, in my contemplation, I thought of um, Dr. Spock and his most famous quote. And Terry, tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> She's our, our, our Star Trek uh, expert. <laughs> the needs of the many outweighs the needs of the one. Is that was that the quote that Dr. Spock had? No, no. close. What was it? First, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. Said, of the few. Of the few. Okay. So <laughs> so, so Dr. Spock clarified <laughs> it. Although, the Buddha would 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 have extended that, although the needs of the one are included in the needs of the many. Okay, so Buddha would add a little bit of an addendum to that statement because we're not going to throw ourselves out of then the mix of, you know, really taking care of the needs of all. So what are we really wishing for others? There are two kinds of happiness. There's one that's temporal or worldly, and then there's one that's called ultimate happiness. The worldly happiness is the kind of happiness that we wish for others in all of its myriad forms, whether it be good health, success in their endeavors, a sense of safety, protection, security, harmonious relationships, um, comfort, healing, personal growth. May they have the opportunities to grow their good qualities. May they be able to learn how to deal with the disappointments in life, to be able to deal with their anger, their frustration, their confusion. Those are worldly, temporal wishes for happiness for all beings. And may they create the causes for those things. The other one, which is the ultimate happiness, which in Buddhism is the wish that all beings meet, these wonderful teachings of the Buddha, that they be able to find a qualified spiritual mentor who can guide them along the path so they're not dropping into one ditch or another, getting caught up in confusion, that they will realize the nature of reality, cultivate all of the good qualities, be able to extinguish and lessen all of the qualities that bring so much harm to themselves and others, and to develop the motivation to become a Buddha, to become awakened, where then the love and compassion are brought to their complete perfection, and that all beings can then benefit each other perfectly, as skillfully, wherever they are, whoever they are, whatever their capacities are. So that's the wish on the ultimate level, because this kind of peace and happiness doesn't end. This is the kind of peace and happiness that keeps on giving. Then we run into um, where we get caught, or where we get confused, is that we don't understand the difference between love, the wish that all beings have happiness in its causes, and attachment. And so, what we're, and we need to talk a little bit about attachment because it's actually a huge obstacle in cultivating and growing our um, wish for people to have happiness and its causes. So here's, here's kind of what I've gleaned from His Holiness on, um, on how he sees attachment in, and how it's very, very different than love. Attachment is a, is a state of mind, it's an attitude that exaggerates the good qualities of someone, exaggerates the good qualities of an object, or actually projects good qualities onto that person, an object that aren't even there. Okay, So it's it's an exaggeration, it's a fantasy. And then we become very invested in that projection or that exaggeration and believe that that's going to bring us happiness. So there's a fantasy we've actually concocted. And then we want that fantasy to take care of delivering the happiness that we're looking for. And not only does it believe that our our happiness uh, either comes from that person or that object, but it believes that that person and object are going to last forever. And they exist pretty much just for me. And we find, I mean, I find myself attached very, very easy to people who praise me, people who encourage me, people who give me presents. I'm attached to food, well, all kinds of food, thinking that there's an ingredient there besides flour and water and eggs and sugar, there's happiness, that's also one of the ingredients. Or if you have a big screen TV, one of the components has got to be happiness. I mean. What else would be in there to be able to bring up this huge visual image that just entertains us for hours? And when this object or person don't perform or respond in a way that we want, this is where the attachment shows itself and manifests because the upset that comes in response to that object not fulfilling that happiness and that person not doing what we want because we want them to do something specific to make us happy. That's where we get to see how attachment is infused, is intertwined, and is confused with love. And I have found for myself that there is a um, there are particular um, how do I want to say there are clues in my reactions to things. Well, things don't go my way, or people don't behave in a certain way. There are clues that arise that can tell me that attachment is in process, and it goes something like this: What? I don't believe it I cannot believe it how can that be I don't understand what is going on oh man those what do you mean what do you mean these are my clues that say attachment is in play because there's some exaggeration you know, And what's happening is that exaggeration is basically blowing up in my face. And I'm pissed off. And the bigger my reaction, the bigger the attachment. And the bigger the attachment, the bigger the anger. Anger is a kissing cousin to attachment. So if you find yourself flaring up when something doesn't happen, it's good to go a little bit of diving underneath that anger to see the attachment. What, was, what were we really expecting here? What was it that we were looking for? Love, on the other hand, the only thing it cares about is that others are happy just because they're they're them, just because they're beings just like us wanting to be happy. It doesn't have any expectations. It accepts people pretty much for who they are. There's not this kind of uh, concern about what's in it for me. There's no agenda underneath love. It's not jealous. It's not possessive, and it's—it doesn't just care about a few. It cares about the many. It's impartial. It's big. It's spacious. It's flexible. It's not tight. It's not agitated. It's not clingy. It's not sticky. It's like relaxed. Now, saying that, love is fine with having realistic expectations. We can expect people to do their share if we have gone into a, going into a project with a group of people who are going to collaborate. There's a realistic expectation. Love says, we're all going to share in the responsibility here. Love's fine with realistic expectations. In an intimate relationship, love says, it's realistic to expect my partner's going to be faithful.
1: Okay, That's,
0: it's, Love is fine ba- about that. The difficulty arises when the hurt and anger flare up because the expectation hasn't been met, even if it's a realistic one. So what love asks us to do is try to keep the basic trust we have in people, that they're kind, that they're going to keep their word, yet accept the truth when that doesn't happen. And how we are able to sort of do this is to remember that just like us, they're overwhelmed by jealousy, confusion, laziness, indifference, and that we really want to treat them the way that we want them to treat us, especially when we mess up. And that's really what love's about, is kind of putting the reality filter out there rather than the exaggerated, projected filter out there. Attachment. Doesn't know how to deal with people's imperfections. It has the hardest time. And is never happy with any variations on its agenda. It doesn't know what to do with people's foibles, mistakes, confusion, bad days. Their bodies falling apart, their minds falling apart, being lousy moods. Attachment has no idea how to deal with that. And it gets all upset and bent out of shape and starts putting on demands. Love doesn't have that agenda. So you know, when you start looking at it a little bit more clearly, you can see that you know, attachment is quite a bit different than love. And for us, and for all living beings, attachment and love are very much mixed into our relationships. You know, some are relationships of that 80% attachment, 20% love. Some have got 70% love, 30% attachment. I mean, there's a mixed bag. So we, we, I don't think, at least I can say that I'm not there where I can love somebody completely without any type of attachment. But what love is asking us to do is to cultivate some balance, some calm, some realistic expectations, some acceptance. And, you know, to kind of relax around what's inevitably going to happen. And that giving up attachment doesn't mean that we roll over and play dead and we give up what we like and give up our enjoyments. What love is asking us to do is giving up the expectations and the exaggerations, and the clinging and the neediness around our relationships to the world. Now, love requires an extremely strong mind. I mean, to care for the well-being and want happiness for all beings, we require, love requires an extremely strong mind with a lot of courage. Because sentient beings do, as Venerable says, sentient beings do what sentient beings do. And we're going to be providing opportunities every day to really test our love for sentient beings. But loosening our attachment to our own happiness doesn't mean that we stop caring for ourselves either. Okay, so we're not rejecting everything. We're not rolling over, playing dead, go live in a cave somewhere with just a loincloth and our, you know... Hair and dreadlocks—that's <laughs> not what you know. Giving up attachments about. <laughs> we can cultivate love. We can enjoy life. We can be content with <laughs> adequate, adequate material possessions. We really enjoy life, engage life, but to develop at the same time this this inner tool that moderates and keeps an eye out for this exaggerated, sticky, clinging kind of oversensitive. Form mental state that that causes a lot of suffering and gets in the way of really engaging the world in the way that we want. And by generating this more realistic, kind, um, sort of gentle, relaxed relationship to our world, it actually increases our humanity because we're kind of we're on, we're on the same playing field as everybody else. You've seen that suffering is the same. We see their incredible kindness. And it really makes us become more connected to the humanity of ourselves and to just the the general connectedness that we feel around all beings, because they want the same things we do. So that's how what love requires, and how there are practices and teachings that the Buddha has given to really help us to cultivate and try to grow our love out. Then we get to compassion, which is the wish that all living beings be free of suffering and its causes. And this is a very powerful companion to love. They're kind of like kissing cousins. They go hand in hand. And His Holiness says that compassion is a deep feeling from the heart that cannot bear others' suffering without wishing to do one's best to relieve it. It is based on the rationale that all beings have an innate desire to be happy and to be free of suffering. Not only do they have an innate desire, but just like me, they have that natural right to fulfill that aspiration. So it's not anything that any living being is asking that's unusual. We not only have the desire, we have a natural right as a sentient being to be able to aspire to fulfill that need to be happy and not to suffer. And on that basis, on that recognition of this equality among all beings, we develop a sense of affinity for them, rather than a sense of separateness or disconnect. Because that fundamental wish, to be happy not suffer, permeates every mind stream, every moment of life of every living being in this world. And that's the connection, that's the affinity, that's the relationship. And so, this compassion is based on this fundamental right, rather than our, you know, on our own mental projection of who we think is worthy of it. All right? So if we come from the basis of compassion is kind of driven by this innate natural right that all beings want to be free of suffering and its causes, rather than this projection that there's be, with this friend, enemy, and stranger category that only certain beings are worthy of the freedom from suffering. Only certain beings are allowed to create the causes to be free of it. This is genuine compassion. And at first it begins as a wish. The best we can do is just to think about it, imagine it, let our imaginations go wild. What would it be like to be able to benefit sentient beings as best as we could to grow our capacity? And then as time goes on, we can then sort of navigate, well, where are we best, con- you know, considering what our capacity is, where can we best benefit? Where can we best go to try to do our best to alleviate the suffering that some of its causes? Now, we run into, as we did with attachment and love, we run into some general misunderstandings about what compassion is in our world. And this causes a huge, huge amount of suffering. And there are three of them in particular that Venerable and His Holiness talk about. Venerable talked about this last year in Missoula, and I, I can't get enough of hearing this, her teaching on this because it's, it's something that I get confused about a lot. The first one is that we confuse compassion with pity. Pity is condescending. There's a lot of pride in it because when we're looking at the suffering of others, we've got this power differential going on. You know, me magnanimous, me who has so much valuable time, but from the very depths of my heart, I'm so compassionate that I'm going to help you. <laughs> I, it took you know pity definitely has a different tone to it than compassion. It has a um, there's an inferiority sort of directed toward the person that we're really trying to help which gets in the way of a lot of helpful actions. The second misunderstanding we have, what we think is compassion, and and it's somewhat a little bit tricky because it has compassion as part of its name, which is compassion burnout. And this has very specific symptoms. Only if I am suffering (coughs) am I truly compassionate. I mean, if we're not (laughs) falling apart spending who knows how many hours a week doing good for the world, if we're not suffering, we're not being compassionate enough. This is one of the fundamental misunderstandings about what compassion is. We've got to be suffering. First one. Second one is that, another symptom is that we lose sight of the process and get too fixated on accomplishing a goal no matter what it takes. We're wrapped up in the result. Our friends and family never see us Our health goes down the drain. Our mental happiness is gone. We're exhausted. We're stressed. We complain. We particularly complain about the people we're trying to help. (laughs) This is we are in compassion burnout, when we get into that place where our whole life just sort of you know everything's gone because we're so set on the goal of accomplishing our task to help somebody else, no matter what it takes. And another symptom is we try and take care of everybody else but ourselves. This is the martyr. I had to spend a lot of years looking at this one. There is another symptom. is the self-centered thought that disconnects us from what we are capable of doing, especially if we have attachment to reputation and fear of failure. We get ourselves in over our heads over and over again because we haven't been able to discern or revisit what it is that that I'm capable of doing at any given time because we're so attached to what people think. The other one is, we should ourselves. I should be able to do this. I should have more patience, more time, more resources, more compassion. I should, I should, I should, I should, I should. Guaranteed compassion burnout. And then another final symptom, anger arises. We get pissed off at the very people we're helping. Sure sign that we need to take a break. Okay, so that's that's the second of the misunderstandings of what compassion is. The third one is for people who have really—I mean, I'm saying this very honestly and from experience—people who have very, very open hearts that are that are their their whole modus operandi. They come from a very emotional, heartfelt place. So when we see others suffering, we feel their suffering so much that we turn all of our attention to our own suffering, experiencing their suffering. That we can't, we become totally useless. The self centered thought totally <coughs> derails us and turns our attention on once again me, that I am suffering so much just merely watching the suffering of the world. And we get into all sorts of personal distress. We can't sleep, we can't eat, we start medicating ourselves. We become immobilized because we're so caught up, we've, we've forgotten. Who the object of our compassion is, and we've got to turn back on ourselves in an un- unhealthy way, not in a caring sort of way. Another symptom of personal distress is that we have no wisdom to discern what our responsibility is, so we become misfix it, <coughs> miscontrol. We use guilt. We use coercion, and then it all falls apart, and we fall apart. We try to fix people. We try to control them. We try to give them advice. Unless our, our emotions overwhelm us and we become paralyzed, that's more hooked into the one that says, you know, our suffering, take on mm-hmm. their suffering and own it. Fortunately for us, we've got some antidotes. The Buddha gave us some very specific antidotes, and and in the Western culture, it's been developed to really apply to some of our ways of thinking, and it's called the wisdom mind rather than the Mickey Mouse compassion mind. <laughs> Mickey Mouse, compassion is a dangerous persona to take on. So it's our wisdom mind. And what our wisdom mind does is it asks some very important questions. The first one is, well, what is our responsibility in this situation? And the wisdom mind says, well, you do your best to ease the suffering as you can, but don't take over other people's lives and don't ruin your own. Okay, Wisdom number one. Number two, if someone doesn't want our help, wisdom mind says, we gently back off, but we keep our hearts in the door open. And this I've seen and I've heard from many people, that this happens particularly with family. You know, your parents with older children, they're going down a road and you can see they're going to run into a wall and they're going to have some serious, serious suffering. And they don't want your advice, they don't want your support, they don't want your encouragement, they're not answering your email, their phone, they're slamming the door. What to do? We don't close down. The wisdom mind just keeps the heart open. They may come back around. And then we can help empower them whatever they need. And this one kind of ties into the fact that we get frustrated by someone's behavior. You know, you see it. You see the destructive behavior. You see the suffering. And what helps is the wisdom mind says, well, what about you? I mean, you've got some pretty dysfunctional behavior that has caused you some pretty amazing suffering in your life, just like them. Given the circumstances and the situations that have come into the other person's life, wouldn't you think you might be doing the same thing? You know, the don't criticize someone until you've walked in their shoes. It's a wonderful way to look at these situations that tend to be very long-term, very frustrating, very agonizing for us. So we put it in a different perspective, try to see the the situation from the person's eyes. Take a break, if we need. Wisdom mind number five. Number six, have a sense of humor. This is something that I think we all too easily forget, that humor, either taking ourselves too seriously, or taking the situation in a way that just makes it fill with a lot of fear and hopelessness, humor tends to bring the humanity back into si- in the situation and really helps us to connect when things get difficult. So being able to look at some kind of light aspect of the difficulty is very important, especially for people who are, where suffering is, a, is a very much a part of their daily life bring them some sort of lightness, bring them some sort of humor. And sometimes just laughing at ourselves helps others a lot. And then <clears throat> the last one, and this one is one that Venerable has talked about on a number of occasions that I have found to be very, very helpful, is that the wisdom mind understands the definition of setting boundaries. Okay, it's not what we think it is. Setting boundaries truly means the ability of our wisdom minds to get clear so that we know what is good to do in any given situation and what is suitable to do at any given time. Setting boundaries is not about putting people out there. It's not about putting a box, a defense shield around ourselves. It's about getting clarity about what we can honestly do that will be of benefit. And it's only when we're not clear about what our capacity is do we start having this mental thinking going on that I'm being taken advantage of, I'm being taken advantage of. Because we don't have clarity about what it is that we've offered. And that's where we get into trouble. So developing clarity, the wisdom mind is crucial. And lastly is to always come back to our motivation on why we're doing what we're doing. Sometimes this needs to be revisited. Sometimes, you know, the motivation's changed. Sometimes we've lost our ability. But to revisit the motivation, very important, to develop our compassion, to be able to engage the world in a heartfelt way, is to continually check, am I doing this for reputation? Am I doing this for fear of failure? Am I doing this because I'm shooting myself? Am I taking on more than I'm capable of? Am I trying to fix things? Checking And what the the benefits of this, being able to distinguish these three types of misunderstanding, what compassion is, is that we get clear about what the benefits of cultivating genuine compassion are. And that what it does is it broadens our view of our own lives so that our sufferings and our hardships are placed in a much broader perspective so that our hardships and challenges sometimes aren't as terrible as they appear, because we put them within the playing field of all sentient beings. Um, It helps us to see the big picture of suffering, to see that the causes of suffering are very complex, and there's no way that we're going to be able to take care of all of them ourselves. The other thing that compassion does, and I have found this growing over the years, is it increases our my respect and my gratitude for the courage of others facing adversity. You know, when you look at the world, it's just amazing what the people in Saman, in Syria, in Japan, Mexico, dealing with. When I look at my own piddly little things in the course of the day, it's like, wow. May they be free of the suffering and its causes. It puts my whole troubled life in a big perspective. And it, and it helps me grow the incredible respect that I have for them to be able to keep to do what they're doing. You know, to the people of Syria to keep trying to find a peaceful solution to this wild, wild tyranny. And the people in Mexico are losing their, their children, their husbands to these gangs. That there are people that are trying to change things down there in very, very practical, empowering sorts of ways. And we've had a few of them come to the Abbey. They're just remarkable people. To just be so grateful to appreciate them. And that really starts to grow because we start seeing that this is all part of what all of us are dealing with. You know, it's not about Syria. It's not about Mexico. It's not about corrupt politicians. It's all suffering that we're all experiencing in some form or another. Just playing itself out on a very large view. So love and compassion are powerful qualities to have in the world. They require a lot of joyous effort. It takes a long time to cultivate the kind of thinking that the Buddha is encouraging us to think like. They require honesty, humor, fortitude, the willingness to expand our worldview. I mean, where do we belong in the world, and who are these beings? How do we connect to them? How do we have a relationship to them that's purposeful and meaningful and precious? And that's what love and compassion really encourage us to go looking at. You know, How do we relate to them? How do we contribute? How do we engage? That's what it's all about. And then love and compassion really help us to discover those qualities in ourselves and to answer those very important questions. So, that's kind of what I've learned from this week of pondering love and compassion. It's really quite Amazing qualities. And you know, we are, we have the great fortune in this world to have people like his holiness and venerable children and some of our great spiritual and political leaders who are who have these qualities very much cultivated. And so to really keep them in our minds' eyes when we get discouraged about our own capacities. And that's really quite the thing. Does anybody have any questions or comments before we, we dedicate and kind of mm-hmm. let this simmer and Rather, you know, kind of glow in our hearts.
1: Yeah. You know, when people are pursuing, or when one is pursuing love, you know, uh, in the way you describe, what, how does their own attachments, even ones they're not aware of, interfere with that? And that's a big
0: question. Well, it's kind of with the, with the the, um, the definition, which is there's a. There's an exaggeration on where we really believe happiness within our own selves comes from. And so it's outwardly projected. The happiness that we really want to cultivate to sustain our own inner life is something that we have to cultivate within ourselves. And that the people and the objects outside of us, they bring us enjoyment, they bring us connection, they bring us contentment. But a kind of happiness that's stable and realistic and calm that sustains us is the kind of happiness that we have to cultivate within our own minds. So the people in our lives, are they're there because they love us, they care about us. Attachment plays its part because we want the happiness somehow to, be, to come from them, come from the relationship itself, which you can't really do that. So the attachment plays in is that we get confused that when things happen that disappoint us and discourage us and make us upset in our relationships to others, we have to keep remembering that they're being who they are, with their own afflictions, their own struggles, their own weaknesses, and we just trust that they're going to—they're do, doing the best they can—and we support them in a way that we can. But our expectations need to come down to where they are. I mean, we can only—you know—trust people with our—you know—with our in our relationships to the capacity that we can. You now, we can—we love children differently than we love parents. We love our spouses differently than we love our bosses. So love the caring concern that we have for others is different, but it's equal in wanting it to be true for everyone. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, again, I see where you're going. Yeah.
0: I mean, attachment is hard to see because it has a real good feeling about it in our minds or when we first meet somebody or we're engaged in our lives.
1: Well many different helping professions, for instance, is what, uh, the question arises in my mind. Uh, and you know, we, we go about doing really good, you know, do <laughs> I think it's mm-hmm. very, and uh, I, I keep wondering where the motive. I know this is probably not the correct term, but it, how pure is the motive mm-hmm. when we are in that? When we are doing that? And I'm, I'm, it would be so helpful to know where mm-hmm. our own attachments and our own you know, how we're connected to that motive. Mm-hmm. I guess
0: mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. And so. So what you're asking is how to how to be able to say okay where is the attachment where is the love and how am I doing? Exactly. exactly. Well, I think that that is a a process. I think checking, really being honest with our motivation, is crucial. My understanding that when I am in touch with my heart when I help people, there's actually a joy in doing it, and I'm not too attached to how it kind of turns out. Mm-hmm. I'm not real goal-oriented, I'm more process-engaged, connection-oriented. So I find that that's helpful. Um, I think it varies from person to person, I think we're all going to have different capacities on why we get involved, how long we can be engaged, and and who it is that we feel we can really help. I think it's just a matter of, of learning that, but trusting that, keep going back to why we're doing what we're doing. Anybody else have any other ideas for you? as far as...? I
1: think that it's easy in the helping profession to have a sense of satisfaction about the work, a sense of self-satisfaction, which I don't think is a bad thing, but I think that that it's... um, sometimes you 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 develop skills and this and that, and there's a sense of Kind of accomplishment, and I don't think that's really what benefits others. I mean, it, you do have to have skills, but the, if the motivation is to help with a sense of self-satisfaction, sense of uh, pride in your work, and that not not that those are bad things, but it's a different thing than I'm here to help this person. And every, where it comes up is when uh, you notice it. Well, I noticed it when I left the work I was in, like what happens is you create an identity of mm-hmm. the line of work mm-hmm. and that, that is not doesn't mm-hmm. have anything to do with the motivations to help another person mm-hmm. exactly, I mean you can help people in many ways you don't have to be helping people in a certain profession mm-hmm. to be actually having the motivation to help people so the part of my world that uh, inner life that changed when I didn't have a profession was a really interesting thing to look at and I'm not saying those things are bad things, but they're different than um, necessarily wanting to benefit from
0: person. Okay, folks, we have two stops. Thanks, Rick, for your question. Let's just take a moment to just think about maybe one thing that was said today that might have stirred up a little interest or maybe made sense or... Something you want to um, think about a little more. And reconnect to your own wish. That means be happy and have the causes for that. And rejoice at whatever part of your heart and mind. very much genuinely wish that all beings be free of suffering and its causes. And not to judge what the quality of that is or what the level of it is, just to rejoice that it's there. You certainly wouldn't be here at the Abbey today if it wasn't there already. And so rejoice in that. And then expand that very good heart out into the world and if there's somebody in your life or there's someplace in the world that's in a difficult time right now just send that good heart that aspiration to benefit in the form of light send it right to them and let it just gently shower them bring some sort of peace, resolution safety protection whatever they need freedom.